Hey, we're starting a new conversation today, okay? So I'm really glad if this is your first time here that you came today because you came at the front end of a conversation that we're gonna have for the next six weeks, okay? So the next six weeks, we're gonna have this conversation and the conversation is called Questioning God. It's an important conversation because there are people who question if there is a God. There's people who have questions for God, questions about God. And so you may be here this morning and they fit somewhere in there, right? You're like, I don't even know if I believe God exists. Man, I'm so glad you're here. I say this all the time. You don't have to agree with me to come here, okay? But I'm glad you're here. And see, I don't even know if I believe God exists. I'm glad you're here. Some of you are like, I'm struggling. I have questions for God. I have questions about God I can't quite make sense of. And so we're going to run into some of that. And so here's what I would recommend over these next six weeks. The the way for you to make the most out of this conversation that we're going to have, if I could make some suggestions to you, here would be my suggestions. First, I would say this. If at all possible, I'd come hang out the next six weeks. I'd come all six weeks. And you might be like, man, it's not my rhythm. It's not, I, I get it. I understand that. It's, it's kind of hard for six weeks in a row to say I'm going to, but I would encourage you to do that in order to engage in the continuity of the conversation. Second, I would say this, for every one of the conversations that we have or what we call series that we have, we provide a, a little take home for you. So you can Monday through Friday engage in the conversation. So we just simply start the conversation on Sunday. And then what we want you to do is Monday through Friday is in these little, little take-homes is to dig a little deeper and grapple with it. Gives you some things you can look at, some kind of help you navigate the conversation. Third, if you're not part of a group, can I encourage you to, to, to maybe try one for this conversation? And say, what's that? Well, we have these things called grace groups. And we like to have these conversations in community. And so here's the way I see what I do. What I do is only part of what we do, right? Our grace group leaders, the people who lead our small groups, they really do the heavy lifting because they take the conversation I'm going to start today and then they kind of unwrap it in community in groups of 10 to 12, something like that. So you're like, I've never been in one, but I like to try one. Downstairs in our newly renovated lobby, we have a little table. You can sign up and check it out and try a grace group. I also would tell you this, invite your friends to come. You're like, man, I have some friends who they have big questions for God. They don't believe in God. Great, they can come. They're like, they're not really church people. That's fine. Invite them to come. We want them to be a part of this. Uh, This is a safe environment to have the conversation. And last but not least, I am indebted. I've done tons of reading in preparation for the conversation. I enjoy doing that. I want to make sure that I'm prepared for what it is that we're talking about. And so we've made available in the lobby some of the, the books that I've read. And uh, one in particular, just by way of illustration, uh, we have available down there a book called Reason for God by Tim Keller. I'm very indebted to him for a lot of things in this conversation. We also have available down there a book by our senior leader of the movement called Grace Church, and his name's Jeff Bogue. He wrote a fascinating book called Five Assumptions About God and Why They're Wrong, and people's wrong assumptions about God. And so I'd encourage you to go down and check that out, maybe pick those resources up. They're going to help you delve into the conversation a little further, maybe help it kind of take root inside of you. But here's what I know. People have questions about and for God. They have doubts. And so we're going to run right into these things, and we want to open the doorway to some of these questions. Here's what we're going to do. Some of the doorways we're going to open. Beginning next week, we want to open the doorway to the question of exclusivity. You're like, what is that? The question of exclusivity simply says this. You mean to tell me, Dan, I get this all the time. You mean to tell me you believe there's only one way to God? That the only way to God is through Jesus? Doesn't that seem arrogant? 
Doesn't that seem intolerant in a culture where tolerance seems to be king? Doesn't that seem to be divisive, exclusive? You mean to tell me that there's people in other religions that are good people that that don't believe in Jesus, that he's the way to God, and you mean to tell me they're not going to get to God? Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run right into that. Like, let's just have the conversation. Uh, The week after that, we're going to run into what I call the question of suffering. We're going to open that door and say, what's that? Well, how in the world, if God is so loving and if he's all-powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? I look around, it's like, man, there's devastation. How do I make sense of that with a loving, powerful God? We're going to run into that question. The week after that, this is a question that I get asked, and this ought to be an interesting week, and I call it the question of hell. Because I get asked this, you mean to tell me, Dan, you believe hell is real? And you mean to tell me God sends people to hell? I thought he's loving, he's kind, he's merciful. And you mean to tell me he sends people to an eternal damnation in hell? Well, let's grapple with that question. Let's talk about it. Let's say, okay, what in the world's going on here? The next week, I want to talk about what I call the question of hypocrisy. And some of you have talked to me about this question because it's hypocrisy in the church. And you're like, I'm all about God. It's the church I have a problem with. And and you look at the church, whether modern day or in history, and you're like, man, it's been the instrument of so much harm and injustice. And so how in the world can I connect myself to something that has hurt people? In fact, some of you, quite frankly, have been hurt by church. It's like, I don't even know how I would be connected. I'm not about organized religion. I'm all about God. So we're going to run right into it. Last week is this. We're going to talk about the question of authority. Every last one of us in this room has something that speaks authoritarily into our life. It's something that, that has the authority to tell us what to do. And so many of you know, like, well, for a Christ follower, it's the Bible. And, and it begs the question, how do I know I can trust my Bible? How should I read my Bible? Is the Bible relevant? Does not make sense? And so we're going to run right into that. How in the world do I know I can trust the Bible? Is it trustworthy? Here's what I know, okay? Here's what I want you to get. There's more questions than that. Those are the doors we're gonna open, but here's what I know, ready? Stay with me today. That no matter which of those doors we're opening, they all are connected to the same hallway. You're like, what? They're all connected to the hallway of doubt. All of those questions are connected to the hallway of doubt. Our questions are fanned by, fueled by, and foster more doubt. And so some of you are here this morning, and I'm glad you're here because you're like, I have doubts. Some of your doubts and your questions about and for God are fueled by your experience. Some of you are in that boat this morning. Here's what I mean by that. You had an awful bad experience, and you're like, what? Where's God in that? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Some of you had a bad experience in church, and you know what? You, you drew this conclusion. Maybe this thing's rigged, and maybe all churches are this way, right? Others of you, your doubt and your question, you know what? It's fueled by education. Here's what I mean by that. You were like in Sunday school, the five-year-old, and your Sunday school teacher told you about God, and you kind of grew up with this God thing, and then you went away to college, and your professor, who is much smarter than you, said to you this, religion and faith are simply a psychological crutch for people who are weak. And so your professor said, you know something, there's no way religion, religion and science are compatible, there's no way faith and logic can coexist. 
And so in your mind, it creates, well, man, this guy who I'm coming to, paying a lot of money to, he's a lot smarter, he studied more than me. And so what's happened is, is somehow your education has created doubt. And others of you, quite frankly, you just came out of the womb doubting, right? I mean, you just are a skeptical person by your nature. It's simply your personality to doubt. Wherever you're at in that, here's what I know. In this room this morning, ready? This will set up where we're going. There are some of us who believe. We're like, I believe in God. I'm all about God. I'm all in. And that's awesome. But there are some of us who are like, I don't believe in God, and I'm convinced I never will. Let me stop and say, I am thrilled you're here. Well, I'm glad you're here. But then there's another group of us, you're like, I believed in God, but then this happened, or I experienced this, or I went there, and now... I have questions and doubts, and I'm not sure that I believe in God, or at least I'm struggling to believe. And then there's some who believed in God and walked away altogether, and they belong to this group. They belong to this new group in our culture labeled the nuns. Have you heard that? The N-O-N-E-S. You know what that is? That is just people who say, I have no affiliation. I want nothing to do with anything of faith or religion, and it's growing by the year. In fact, 23% of our American population would say, I'm a nun, right? Make sure you spell that right. When you go home and tell your parents, like, hey, I found what I am, right? I'm a nun, right? It's like, what? Yeah, you're a nun. That means I have no affiliation. I'm not hostile to religion, but it's mostly made up of males who have migrated, get this, from Christianity. Why? Because they have questions they could never settle. Regardless of where your story is, regardless of where you fit in that spectrum, my hope is this series of conversations is going to be helpful to you. So it begs the question, what do I do with my doubts? We got to make some observations at first. First is, I want you to write these things down. First, I got to acknowledge your doubt is not uncommon. I want you to know that. All morning, I've, I've been sharing this and I've had people come and say, thank you for saying this, that your doubt, you're not the only one in the room with questions. In fact, can I just let a cat out of the bag? If we were honest, if we're just honest, almost everybody, if not everybody in this room has at one time, if not now, had questions and doubted. I won't speak for you because you're like, don't speak for me. I'll just speak for me. I have, I do, right? Your doubts are not uncommon, nor are they new. Your doubts are not new. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we wrongly think, well, our society is more sophisticated now, right? And so we're more advanced. Those people back in Bible times, they were more gullible. They swallowed everything. Can I tell you something that I think is really, really cool about the Bible? The Bible is real and raw about people's questions. In fact, you shouldn't take my word for it. Check me out on it. But when you read the story of the Bible, you find that God allows people's questions to be expressed in a real way, with rawness even. Read the book of Habakkuk, which is kind of a cool name, right? It's in the Old Testament. It's like this guy arguing with God. He's like having this argument with God. Gideon, he's like, God, I don't know. And are you going to show up? And I'm not. Moses, you know, he's like, "Ah, I, I I don't think I can do this, right? I mean, it's these people in the Bible that are struggling with their doubt. Your doubt is not a new phenomenon, but this is important. You need to write this down. Your doubt is not neutral either. Your doubt is not neutral. Well, you doubt, we doubt, we all doubt, everybody doubts, right? So let's get on with life because there's three things you can do with your doubt this morning. 
Three things you can do with your doubt. And you're like, what is that? First is this. You can be defined by your doubt. You can be defined by your doubt, and that's what we call a skeptic. A skeptic is somebody who's defined by their doubt. I like the way one author I read put it. His name's Alistair McGrath. He said, skepticism is the decision to doubt everything deliberately, just as a matter of principle. This is what I do. So a skeptic is somebody who's like, doubting is an ends. It's not a means to an ends. I just doubt because I doubt no matter what it is. I want to doubt. That's what I'm going to do. I'm defined by doubt. But the second thing you can do with your doubt, now look here a second, and I fear that a lot of people who grew up in church, this is the camp they fit in, I can deny my doubt. And when I deny my doubt, here's what happens. All of a sudden, I become what we call superficial. And somebody with a superficial faith is a vulnerable person of faith. In fact, I like the way Tim Keller put it. Look at this. He said, people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of the smart skeptic. Here's here's what's interesting is, is that people whose faith is superficial find themselves running into and out of their relationship with God. Can I take a little side road on this? And this is not the purpose. Of it, but if your relationship with God, stay with me on this. This will rattle some of you. If your relationship with God is simply based on emotion, and tons of us maybe struggle with this. So here's the way that works. Like, man, I'm, I'm all excited and passionate about God because Pastor Aiden was rocking it out and playing the songs that I like. And woo, man, it's like, I'm all in, holy, and I'm gonna. It's like, bam, it gives the quiver in your spiritual liver and you're like in Here's what happens. If that's as deep as your faith goes, and I've seen it happen, you know what happens? When all of a sudden something smashes, tragedy, something I can't get my head around, it's like, what's up with that? And it's easy to run out and into that kind of faith. Superficial faith is very vulnerable. Or when somebody really smart who's skeptical comes and talks to you, you're like, I don't even know how to answer that question. I don't even, I've never thought about that before. You see, you can... Be defined by your doubt. You can deny it, but there's a third thing, and this is where I want to spend our time in this series, and I want you to write this down. I can deal with it. I can deal with, I can struggle with my doubt, and I think it's interesting maybe to get the conversation started to look at a guy in the Bible who happened to be a follower of Jesus. He was in his inner circle, and as we understand his story today, He actually is defined by and described by his doubt. His name is Doubting. You've heard his story. In John chapter 20, Jesus has already been killed, buried, rose again. And Thomas' story comes into play. Here's how it goes. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, this is by way of interesting trivia. Uh, A lot of scholars would say that Thomas was a twin. It's interesting, right? In fact, I read some scholars say maybe his twin brother was Matthew, the tax collector. That's also interesting, right? But this is what is more interesting to me in this story. He was one of the 12, so don't miss this. He was one of Jesus' inner circle, right? One of the chosen. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 
Guys, look up here a second. Read your Bible in video, not audio. Read it in color, not black and white. Here's what happened. If you read the story, the disciples were together. Thomas wasn't with them. And Jesus showed up. Now, I don't know how you read that, but it seems like to me Thomas picked a bad night not to show up to Euchre night, right? It's like, if you're not going to show up, that's not that. Because Jesus showed up. And it's like all the other ones are there. Jesus comes, risen from the dead. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas gets back together with them, and they're like, hey, guess what? We've seen Jesus. Like, saw him, talked to him. Right there, Thomas. Look here a second. Notice what it says. It says the other disciples. It doesn't say Peter, one of them. It doesn't say Andrew. It says the other disciples. As I read that, like the other 10 disciples, like there's 10 of them. Guess what, Thomas? We saw Jesus. But Thomas is just like some of you and I this morning. He looks at them, not just one of them, but all of them. He says, eh, that doesn't work for me. I doubt it. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I ain't going to believe. Thomas said, I don't think so. Even if all 10 of you saw him, I'm not sure I believe. Thomas is like, I doubt it. But Thomas wasn't going to deny his doubt. Thomas, I don't think, was just going to be defined by his doubt. I think just like you and I, that that we have questions about God, and and we might hear people tell us about God, and maybe we have church friends who are like, man, God did this, and we're like, eh, I don't know. (laughs) I doubt it. And here's the deal. Some of us have given up on the idea of God because we have doubts that God even exists. So what do you and I do to deal with our doubt? Three things, we're done. Three things, we go home and have lunch. But I want you to write them down, and I want this to be the beginning of the conversation, because I think it will begin to agitate and percolate a much deeper, more profound conversation if you'll allow it to. What do we do to struggle with and deal with our doubt? I want you to write this down first. I got to doubt my doubt. Why? To find my faith. I want you to write it down. I'll explain it. I got to doubt my doubt to find my faith. I'm simply saying this. I need to question my questions. I need to study my skepticism. The point is this. Whether you're a Christ follower in the room this morning and you have doubts about God, questions for God, or whether you are somebody in the room who's already given up on the whole idea of God, here's the point. Stay with me. The point is hidden beneath Your doubts and your questions is an alternative set of beliefs. My doubt in one set of faith beliefs is really my saying, I believe something else. And so I might doubt that God exists, but it is an affirmation that I believe something else. Keller puts it this way. Just look at this. He says, all doubts, however skeptical, cynical they may seem, are really an alternative belief, set of beliefs. Every doubt is a leap of faith. Look here. here, here, Why did Thomas doubt? Why did Thomas doubt? Just because he liked to doubt? No, because he believed something else. I think, personally, he believed several things, and that's why he couldn't wrap his head around Jesus was alive. First, I think Thomas had a hard time believing that the Messiah that they were looking for was going to suffer and be killed. He like watched Jesus be killed. and He's like, yeah, I thought we were going to take over. I think Thomas is like, 
ah, that, okay, that's not how I thought it was going to all roll out. Second of all, I think Thomas stood there among the 10 other disciples and he said, and you know something? Jesus died, dead, buried, and dead people don't come back to life. And I think Thomas was like, yeah, Messiahs don't suffer and dead people don't live. And third, I think Thomas was like, and you know, something else that I believe that if I can't see it, it's not really true. And so underneath of his doubt was this set of beliefs. Here's the way I would say it. I'm going to keep going back to this. Every last one of us in this room, no matter if you're a follower of Christ, but you're struggling with doubt for God, or you're a staunch atheist, like, I don't even believe God exists. Every last one of us, no matter where you're at in that spectrum, look here. We lean the ladder of our life up against a wall of faith. Every last one of us. No one excluded. You see, Thomas leaned his ladder against an alternative set of beliefs. I like what Alistair McGrath says. Can we throw that up there? It says, Christians often tend to see only one side of the statement that nobody can rationally prove that God exists. But there's another side to it, and that is nobody can disprove God exists. Now, this is the part that really captured me. Christians who believe in God do so as a matter of faith, we would say yes. But atheists do the same. Their belief that there is no God is exactly that, a belief, because they cannot prove that there is no God. Their atheism is also a faith. It is a belief system. And so here's the deal. Can I just talk to you for a second, and then I need to roll to the next point. You might be somebody here this morning, or maybe you have friends, and you're like, I'm not sure how to talk to them. You might be somebody like, I've looked at this, I've studied this, I've engaged with this, and I've landed on there is no God. Let me say this again. I'm glad you're here. This is safe. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. But you're like, you know, Dan, I believe that I've looked at it, and you might be in the room, like, I'm, I'm smarter than you and 12 other guys, and that probably is true. And I've studied it and looked at it, and I've come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. And, and I'm fine with that, and I'm glad you're here, but if, if I could just ask you to be intellectually honest about something this morning, that you are a person of faith, equally as much as somebody who believes in and follows God. And my challenge to you would be to doubt your doubt, to, to, to look behind the doubt that you have that God exists and find what it is that you believe in. Find the wall of faith that you're leaning the ladder of your life against. Because atheism is a belief system. And it's a belief system that has real implications. Let me illustrate, not purpose for today's sermon, let me illustrate, if, if you're here and you're an atheist, you're like, no God, out of the equation, then that means you have to believe certain things. For instance, that means that, that somewhere, you, and, and I'm fine if this is where you're at this morning, but it means you believe something came from nothing. And, and, and it means somewhere in, in the process of your thinking that first life came from no life, with no help. And, and there's people who have written about this, and there's fascinating articles and journals. about. But, but it means that. And, and then it means this, that, that you believe and you lean against this wall of faith, saying natural selection is therefore responsible for all life after first life, this Charles Darwin, survival of the fittest. I mean, somewhere along the way, if that's where you're at, it's like you lean the ladder of your life against that belief, against that wall. 
And, and somebody a lot smarter than me, raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Richard Dawkins. Anybody ever heard that name? Okay. So, so he's author, atheist, debater, wrote a book called God Delusion. At the end of his book, he wrote something interesting about this. Here's what he wrote. He said, think about it. On one planet, and possibly only one planet in the entire universe, molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock gather themselves into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they're capable of running, jumping, swimming, flying, seeing, hearing, capturing, and eating other such animated chunks of complexity, capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. He said, now we understand how the trick's done, but only since 1859. Listen, listen. Like, if you're here and, like, that's what I believe, my goal is not to bash you, make fun. That's not it. That's why I wanted to quote somebody who believes this. Those are his words, not mine. I'm not, but, but, but bottom line is, he would say, at the end of the day, the ladder of my life leans against the wall of faith, and that, that has implications, Some of the implications to believing that, you can write this down, we'll tease it out later, are simply this. If that's true, that something came from nothing, first life, no life, with no help, all those things, that means value is an illusion. Like, how do you determine right and wrong if there's no, like, like, that's wrong? Says who? I mean, there's no center of justice. Like, how do I know? I, I told you something about this last week. Beyond that, free will is an illusion. Free will's an illusion. In fact, somebody who's a well, well-renowned atheist, he's a lot smarter than me, his name is Stephen Hawking, he would say, in a world that's governed by physics, biology, and chemistry, there's no free will. And he says the word game in the game of life is a misleading term. There's no winners and losers. In fact, there's no players at all. Game of life, not really a game, but a set of laws that govern a two-dimensional universe. It's a deterministic universe. Once you set up a starting configuration or initial condition, The laws determine what happens in the future. There's no free will. And last but not least, my mind is an illusion. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I've read and and looked at a lot of different people, and there's another guy whose name is Christopher Hitchens, well-renowned, very smart man who would acclaim, lean the ladder of his life against this set of beliefs called atheism. And in his dying moments decided, I want to chronicle my thoughts. And the doctors were coming to him and saying, your mind might be, might be very willing, but your body isn't. And he looked at them and he said something that is fascinating. If you, if you allow it to, to, to sink in, he says, I don't have a body. He said, I am a body. And that's all I am. You see, the point is this, that each of us have a wall that we lean the ladder of our life against. And so you might be here and saying, hey, listen, I don't believe there is a God. Something came from nothing. And I'm like, I'm so glad you're here. But I'm simply saying, then when I look behind my doubt, there is no God. I see the wall that I'm leaning my ladder against. But here's what I believe. There's more of you in the room that you would, you would sit here and say, man, it's, it's about science. And, and I want you to hear me say something, it, that faith and science are not incompatible Because we can know something as a matter of science, and that's this. We know as a matter of absolute fact this morning, all of us can agree on this, that right now we're racing 67,000 miles an hour around the sun. We're flying, right? 20 miles every time we blink. Like, boom, gone, gone, right? We're flying. Like, we know that. 
And so we're like, yes, that's a matter of fact. But even though we all can acknowledge that as a matter of fact, it is a matter of faith where we might differ on how we got here. And scientists would say this, that we aren't just here, but we're in what they call the Goldilocks zone. Did you know that? The Goldilocks zone is it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. You've heard of that, right? And somehow, as a matter of faith, we all believe something about how we, we leaned our ladder of our life against something. Now, can I just talk to you for a second? Here's what I think. Some of us are like, that's me, Dan. There's others of us who are like, you know something, Dan? I started doubting God not because atheism provided a great alternative, but because religion and the God that I was presented with as a child doesn't translate well into my adult experience. Some of you are there this morning. You're like, you know something? Like Mabel was my Sunday school teacher and she told me about this God who he knows everything and just pray and he'll take care of you. And you know something, Dan? I, got, I was 25 and I got cancer. It's like, Mabel's God just didn't grow up with me because I can't figure that out. And, and, and I wonder, stay with me, I don't want you, listen, I, want, I don't want to mumble here. I don't want you Facebooking what I'm getting ready to say, tweeting it, Insta-posting it, sweet gramming it, all that kind of stuff. Whatever you guys do on your little phones, because it might be misunderstood. I want to make sure you understand what I'm getting ready to say. What if you doubted your doubt? And when you doubted your doubt, you found out that the God you stopped believing in never really existed in the first place. What if the picture you were painted as a five-year-old kid was either inaccurate or incomplete and you gave up on a God that really doesn't exist because that's not the God of the Bible and he was never given a chance to grow up in your mind, in your heart, in your experience? You see, some of you are there and here's the deal, okay? Now, I, this, we really got to jump into this. But some of you are like, Dan, that's me. Because you know something, Mabel told me that this is the God and I have this. And I would encourage you to get Pastor Jeff's book downstairs, if that's you. I think it would be engaging for you. But you're like, it just doesn't translate. And so I ran away from God because it's like, you know something, being an adult, the little Sunday school God doesn't work for me. What do I do? Because some of you are sitting here this morning. In fact, your eyes are interesting to me. And you're like, man, I, like, I wanted to believe God. But like, oh, there's stuff happening. And I just struggle. What do I do? And you can relate with someone in the Bible. I love the fact this is in here. He came to Jesus and his son was demon possessed. Right? And he says, I need your help. And Jesus is like, I'm going to help you believe. And in Mark chapter 9, he prayed something that I think some of us can relate to. He said, I do believe, but gosh, there's stuff that I'm struggling with. Will you help me in my unbelief? Anybody glad that's in the Bible can relate with that? Because I sure am. So what do we do when, when we're like, I believe there's a God, but man, I don't understand and I'm struggling. How do I walk through that? How do I get a grip on that? How do I deal with my doubt in that? I want you to write this down because here's what I would suggest. I need to wrestle at that point with God. Wrestle with God in my questions, to strengthen my faith. Now, I'm getting ready to take you somewhere that I really need you to stay with me on. 
because I've been talking to people all morning, and if there's something that I've said this morning that has resonated over and over and over again, it's what I'm getting ready to share with you. You see, when I think about what it means to wrestle with God in my faith, I think of this weird, obscure, crazy, fascinating, incredible story in the Bible. It's found in Genesis 32. You ought to write it down. You ought to read it. It's incredible. You shouldn't take my word for any of this. You ought to check me on everything. But it is an incredible. It's a bit odd, but it's a fascinating story. It's about a guy named Jacob. And you know what's interesting to me? I didn't think about this till this morning, but Jacob, just like Thomas, was a twin. He had a twin brother. His brother came along first and then Jacob. So Jacob was the second born, but he was a twin. But here was the deal. Jacob and Esau, even though they were twins, were not very much alike. In fact, I like the way one author put it. I think it describes it well. Listen, he says, Esau and Jacob, though twins, were very different. Esau was tough, macho. We know he was hairy. He liked to hunt. He probably watched Sports Center, drove an F-150 with a big Semper Fi decal on the back window, and he had season tickets to the local UFC fighting arena. He looked like a character off a of Duck Dynasty. You read the story. I think the cat's right on here, man. Jacob, on the other hand, he was more of an indoors guy. We know he had smooth skin. He liked to cook. He probably watched The Bachelor, drove a Mini Cooper, and had a Pinterest account. Is what they said. Works for me. But the story goes like this. The story's fascinating. Esau was the oldest, and so he had the blessing and the birthright of being the oldest. As the story goes, Jacob's mom helps Jacob trick and deceive their father so that he got what Esau had come into him. He stole Esau's birthright in his blessing. Well, as you can imagine, when Esau figured out what was going on, he was what you and I would be. He was mad, right? And so Jacob's mom feared for his safety. She said, you better get out of Dodge. She sends him away to a relative who lived away. She said, go there, you're going to be safe. So he went there, the guy's name is Laban, and through this weird, peculiar series of events, he finds the love of his life. Her name happens to be Rachel. And he tells Laban, I'm going to work for you seven years so I can have Rachel. She is beautiful. I want her as my wife. So I worked seven years, and Laban's like, that's cool, you can have her as your wife. Through this crazy, weird turn of events, you read the story, it's like, but it's, just read it. It's like 14 years later, 14 years later, he finally ends up with Rachel. But that ain't all he has. He's got Rachel and he's got her sister who he didn't want, right? Like he's got two wives. I mean, his, Laban had tricked him and deceived him. And 14 years later, after he has these two wives, he's, he's a successful man. He's got a caravan of people. He says, it's time for me to go back home. This is where it gets interesting. Because like, I'm going to head back home. And on his way back home, word makes its way to Jacob from his brother Esau. His brother Esau sends word saying, I'm coming to meet you. And I got 400 guys with me. <laughs> I don't know what you'd be thinking. I know what I would be thinking. I'd be like, rut row. 
Like I thought 14 years might be enough time and it wasn't. Like he's coming and so what Jacob does is what you and I, he begins splitting his caravan up. He's like, man, if I split them up, he can only get half of them. I still got half of them. He begins staging them so that he sends ahead others ahead of him. He sends gifts ahead as though to bribe him. He sends his own family ahead so that he himself is at the back of the caravan all by himself. And this is where the story just like pops for me because it says that he finally finds himself all alone and he's gonna spend his night camping out all alone. And you know what happens? It's crazy. Genesis 32 says that he spends this night alone and he begins questioning God. He's like, God, now you've been kind and you said, but Jacob's come, or Esau's coming and I think he's gonna, and how's this gonna, I don't understand. He had questions. He had doubts. And so all alone in the camp by himself, do you know what happens? If you read the story, it says that he wrestled all night long with some dude who he didn't even know who he was. Guys, look here a second. Read the Bible in color, not black and white. Some of us have read that story. It's like, yeah, I know that story. Think about it. Like, he's camping out. He spends the entire night wrestling some guy. It's like, I don't even know this dude's name. That's not even the craziest part of the story. The story says this. It says the guy could not overpower Jacob. But then there's something odd. Because this guy who, ready? Look up here. Everybody look here. Who could not overpower Jacob. At the end of the wrestling match, you know what he does? He touches his hip. Boom. Pops his hip out of socket. And all of a sudden, you get the idea that Jacob had been wrestling, kind of like you used to wrestle with your dad, and he let you in, you know? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Like you, like you guys in the room, it's like you wrestle with your dad. It's like, I'm beating your dad. It's like, yeah, you got me, Dan. It's like, he let you in, right? Which, by the way, Aaron, if you're listening, last time we wrestled before you went to college, I let you in in case you wondered about that, all right? I'm just telling you. But, but, but here's the deal. You get the idea. It's like he's wrestling with somebody. It's like he can't ever, but this guy touched his hip. And so this is what Jacob says. He grabs a hold of the guy. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the guy says something interesting. It's almost like he blows off his question. Because the guy looks at him and says, okay, what's your name? Guys, it, this stuff is fascinating to me. It's like, why would you ask that? I just like, would like a blessing. I don't know your name. <laughs> like, why, why are you asking me my name? And he makes him say his name out loud, and he says, Jacob, why in the world would he make him say, I just want a blessing. Why would he make him say his name out loud? Because Jacob means what? Deceiver. And in a moment, Jacob comes face to face with that which has described his life to this point. He lived a life of deceiving and being deceived by others. And he said, your name is Jacob, but from this moment on, your name will be Israel, which means what? To struggle with or wrestle with God. And all of a sudden, in that moment, Jacob's eyes were opened I'm, guys, I, I get goosebumps telling this story. And he realized at that moment, I've not been wrestling some any old dude. But God has allowed me to wrestle all night with him and he spared my life. He didn't kill me. And at that moment, here's where I need you to lean in. The one who was about ready to run, the one who had spent his life running, 
wrestled with God, and he walked away from that moment with a limp, no longer running from God. His question never got answered. But God's like, you are now the one who wrestles with me, walk by faith. Look here. Some of you have doubts and questions, and you want to run from God. And this morning, God is so kind and gracious and sovereign and big. He invites you to wrestle with him even in your questions. You may walk away from that wrestling match with a limp. You have a pastor talking to you right now who limps today. Spiritually, I walk with a limp because I've wrestled with God not for a night, not for a week, but for months, I came a hair's breadth away from running altogether. Disenfranchised, disillusioned, questions I couldn't wrap my head around, and I wrestled with God. And I walk today with a limp. But better to walk with a limp with God than to run from Him altogether. And this morning, God is gracious. I think that is fascinating in this story that we have a God who says, I'll wrestle with you so that at the end of this, your faith might be strengthened and the one who was gonna run now can walk. And what do I do at that point? I want you to write this down, then we're done. Then I can walk by faith into my questions toward my hope. Now guys, this, this clock, I don't want you to turn and look at it, but it's frustrated me all morning. But what I'm getting ready to share with you, if you'll give me two or three minutes here, is so, so, so important. No matter what you believe about God, if you'll dial in for the next two, three, four minutes, your faith is connected to your hope. Your faith is connected to your hope. Say that out loud with me. Your faith is connected to your hope. Here's what I mean by that. Every last one of us have a ladder called our life. Every last one of us lean that ladder against a wall of faith. Whatever it is that we think is at the top of that ladder is our hope. They're connected. In fact, I'm not making this up. God seems to affirm this in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at what he says. He says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we don't see. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. My faith is connected to my hope, and faith is not the absence of questions, but because of my faith, I can walk even into my questions. They are connected. So for the sake of time, can I just talk, I just want to talk to you as as pastor. I have something that is right in the core of my heart. I've been a pastor for 20 years. And where I see this play itself out, is when people die. I have done a gazillion funerals. And it's always interesting to me to hear the comments of the people who are friends and family members of the loved one in the casket. 20 some years doing funerals of all kinds of people. Some I knew, some I didn't know. I can count on one hand and I don't need all the fingers. But it's happened. The amount of times somebody would say to me, you know, Dan, I don't believe there is a God. 
So he was, and now he's no more. He no longer exists. Things are over. And that makes sense because the ladder of your life leaned against the wall of faith. If something came from nothing, then something goes back to nothing. It just ends. And if that's where your faith is, you're like, something came from nothing, so when we die, we go back to nothing. Here's what my hope is. The top of the ladder is this life's as good as it gets. I might as well eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Like, live it up, right? Because I only got so much time. And I don't know how much time I have, right? So if that's where the ladder of my life is leaning, it's like, and you might be hearing like, that's what I believe. And it's like, I, all I'm trying to do is connect the dots. Then I'm leaning my ladder against that wall of faith and my hope is there. But can we just be honest for a minute? I've done a gazillion, not that many, but a lot of funerals. And I can count on one hand the amount of times somebody said that. You know what happens the majority of times? You know what they say to me? They say stuff like this, and this is not all accurate, by the way, nor do you find this in the Bible, but they say this like this. They're in a better place now. They're they're not suffering anymore. Now listen close, lean in. I have people say to me, oh man, I'm glad now I have a guardian angel looking out over me, watching over me. By the way, you won't find that in the Bible, but you know what that tells me? That tells me the majority of people at the end of somebody's life believe there's something beyond where they can see the latter ending. They might not know why they believe that, but but C.S. Lewis said that maybe, just maybe, the one who created us created us with this longing that goes beyond, that searches for this God who we long to find. But the majority of people, where they go to church, have talked about God, uh, they'll say stuff like that at their loved one's funeral. And here's what I know. If those comments which represent my hope are not attached to my faith, listen close, all it is is hopeful wishing. That's all it is. I hope they're in a better place. But Jesus, Jesus says this. He says that your hope and your faith can be connected. And it all revolves around what you believe. You ready? No matter how many questions you have about God, it all revolves around what you believe about one event. And that event happened some 2,000 years ago when they took a guy named Jesus and they strapped him to a wooden cross and they killed him. And then they took his body and they buried it in a borrowed tomb. And then three days later, his followers and hundreds others said, we walked with him, we ate with him, he is alive. In fact, many of them gave their life for that very truth. And what you believe, no matter what your questions might be this morning about that event, is the crucial question and where you're going to lean the ladder of your life. Guys, I'm just trying to be honest with you. I find interesting in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, which is an interesting, fascinating piece of of, of work. He spends very little, almost no time at all, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But there's another guy in the 1960s, his name is Francis Schaeffer, who in the same boat as Richard Dawkins decided to run into this question, and this is what he said. Listen close to what he said. He said, let's settle the matter of the resurrection of Jesus. If he's alive, 
then we got something to discuss. If he's dead and buried in a Palestinian tomb, then let's get on with our life. It boils down to an empty tomb, a person named Jesus, not just the historicity, did he exist? You know that. There's tons of, you know Jesus lived and died, was birthed. It boils down to what you believe, but not just whether you believed it happened, but why it happened, because this is what Jesus said. He came and he died in your place and in my place for our sin. He was buried, rose again. The check did not bounce. And if that's true, then my faith is connected to my hope. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm part of his family and I know I can spend eternity with God. And when I know that, I can lean the ladder of my life against this wall, even if sometimes I reach out for the rungs that are next on the ladder through a fog of questions and doubt. I can walk by faith towards my hope. Let me ask you a couple questions. I'm gonna pray, we're done. Some of you in the room are like, I don't even believe in God, Dan. And man, thanks for being honest and being here and please come back can I just ask you, as I would somebody who said they did believe in God and had doubts, can I ask you to at least be honest enough with yourself, life matters this much to doubt your doubt, to where is the ladder of your life leaning? Because it's leaning against a wall called faith. That's all I'm asking. Some of you this morning have been running from God or want to run from God because oh, this God that the Sunday school teacher taught me about, it's not translating into my world and I have questions and I can't figure out. And this morning, God, the, the God that you're struggling getting your head around, he says, you know something, I love you. It's okay if we wrestle all night, all week, all month. He can be honest with your questions and truth is, you may walk away with a limp. But better to walk away with a limp than to walk away and run away from me. Maybe at the end you won't find the resolution to your questions. But maybe you'll get the very blessing you need. Maybe you'll see yourself in a new way. Maybe you'll see God in a brand new way, in a grown-up way, that's able to walk with you into your grown-up experiences. But this morning I can tell you this, that no matter who we are, your faith is connected to your hope. And whatever wall you've leaned that ladder against, Your hope is whatever it is that's at the top of that. They're connected. And so if Jesus has risen from the dead, we got something to talk about and something to give our life to. And so God, what a conversation this is gonna be and I can't wait to have the next several weeks. God, I thank you for every last person in this room. I look out and I know a lot of them and there's many of them I don't know. And I don't know exactly all of what is going on behind the scenes of their story, but I know you do and and I believe you do. And so God, I thank you for those who maybe are sitting here and, and they believe that I'm talking to the air right now and I'm glad they're here. God, I, I thank you for those who believe you're here, but man, they're struggling and they're they're doubting. I, I pray, God, that you would give them the courage to wrestle and then to walk by faith. 
towards our hope. But God, at the end of the day, would you help each of us in this room to honestly look at and reflect and and be willing to consider this event that happened some 2,000 years ago. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and if those hundreds of people who saw him bore witness to it actually gave their lives because of it, if he rose from the dead, I pray that somehow you'd allow us the intellectual honesty to at least consider not only did it happen, but why? And how does that impact my life? God, I love the fact that I get to hang out with the people sitting right here right now. Thank you for this privilege. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.